Let's go ahead and take opportunity to pray before we hear from God's word today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to just spend time in worship of you, Lord, and we pray that the, the music that Isaiah led us through is, uh, is a joyful noise unto your ear, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity to participate in that. We would pray, Lord, that as we move to the study of your word today, that your spirit would speak to us, we'd hear exactly what it is that we need to hear. That we'd be able to take hold and engrave these things on our heart, that we would grow and inform our lives. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that together today. You're all going to have to tone down the worship songs. Apparently, I can't handle it. So today, I'm going to continue the thread that uh, Josh started last week as we started talking about discernment. Um, we're going to take off just a small chunk of that and, and discuss what it is that, uh, that Josh was talking about overall in Mass. And we're going to uh, spend the year basically breaking off chunks of what Josh has talked about to start us off for the year and expand upon those, explore more about those, and get into more detail. When Josh said that he chopped a bunch uh, out of his sermon um, for, you know, time's sake and, and, and uh, for discussion's sake and that type of thing, uh, we should basically, you know, try to make that up, uh, all the all the other elders as we come through throughout the year to help expand upon that. And then, of course, we'll have a time at the end of the year where we revisit that uh, as, a, as a group and, and have discussion or whatever. In addition to that, of course, we also have uh, the opportunity to meet together in our cell groups and to uh, talk about specific subjects. We have the questions at the end of each sermon to help spark discussion. Uh, but the discussion can come from outside of those questions as well. So if you have something that's pressed upon your heart as you hear anything in the sermons, uh, the cell groups are the appropriate place to bring those up, even if it's not one of the three or, or whatever questions. Um, just, so keep that in mind as we start here today. Um, one of the things that we need to do, at least I always feel the need to do, because I always like to have a, a common or base understanding, is to start out uh, with um, just a, a redefinition of what it is that we're talking about. Not uh, redefining it as into creating something new, but redefining it to ensure that the base or the foundation of it is defined clearly. And, well, there I go with the definite or definitively, right? So, <clears throat> we see this come up a lot with words. I've often said when we stand up here, we have to almost redefine words that people throw around every, every day because what we've come to know as we grow up is almost a, a bastardized uh, version or a, an adulterated version of the word and its true and original meaning. Or it's a subject that our American English just can't fully touch. Like, you know, like the word love, for example. 
When we say love, it's, it's very contextual, but it's just one word. We don't generally have a lot of words for love. But when you look in some of the more classic languages, including uh, Greek, you'll see that there are different kinds of love. And if you've studied the, the Bible at all, you should have seen some of those different loves come out, right? The, the one that, uh, that American society, I would say, is most familiar with would be Eros. Uh, but you have Phileo, right? We have the city of Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. Um, you have Storge. So there's, there's different contextual meanings that all mean love. It's just different aspects of love. And we just say love. And then you're supposed to guess what we're talking about in that regard. So proper context is important because what we've grown up knowing is not necessarily the real definition. It's usually a bastardized version. But it's important to look just like it is at words because those words strung together become sentences and those sentences strung together become thoughts or ideas and those concepts are what informs us of what we understand truth to be. So if we have a bastardized understanding of the words and their definition, therefore it changes the meaning of the sentence, the context of the foundation, and it becomes a subjective truth that's based purely just on the message of those words and the context that we understand them in. Now, that was the long and boring version, right? In other words, we have to define where we're coming from because that is going to determine, number one, where we find the standard for our truth. It's going to determine what informs us and what our standard is and where also we're able to look and find the truth. So personally, when I start looking for the truth, because I have found this to be consistent throughout my life, I look to the Word of God. So there's your context for you. I am predisposed or biased towards the Word of God. That is because of my background, uh, for the, the experiences that I've had in my life that have caused me to see that throughout all those different variables, all the other definitions that have stood as foundation in my life have fallen away, have been false, have cracked, have led me to fall The Word of God has remained consistent. The Word of God has never let me down. And has spoken into every single aspect of my life. It's important that we develop a clear foundation and that it is true and pure. We just spent um, the better part of yesterday... Um, redoing a floor in the, the sound booth you know, portion of, of broadcast, right? And why did, why did we do that? Because the foundation of our, of our studio was crooked. It was tilted. It threw off our perspective. So anything that we would put out any product that we would produce, any videos that are going on in there as we seek to spread out the word would be visually crooked. 
and whether we like it or not, the fact that it's visually crooked would speak to the message that was being produced as well. It would distract from the message as well. So we spent several hours, and we're not even done, working through a solution to try to take care because this floor is slanted. And it turns out it's not just slanted this way, but it's slanted that way, and there's all sorts of things. Because, well, let's be honest, this is a, what, 110 years? 15, right, right. So it's, it's an old building. It's surprising that it's not more slanted in that regard. But um, praise the Lord. So we look towards finding our level in life as well, because our level is going to help to make sure that we're not distracted by other things in life and we're able to focus where we need to. Uh, the Bible says in 1 John, it uh, basically gives us a warning, basically, right, of what we need to look out for and, you know, what we need to be striving for. So 1 John 2 Verses 15 and 16, it says, Do not love this world or the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have love of the Father in you. For the world offers only craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements or possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So it offers you... First John here offers you two different types of things, right? It says it's one or the other. It's not a combination of both. It's not a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's not shopping cart. It's whole thing. Either you love this world or you love the Father. If you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. The love of the world basically equals the love of self. And if you have love of self, you have replaced God in your life with yourself. So this informs everything that you do. But what exactly is it that we're being warned about here? What is the basis that this truth that comes from, uh, that comes from God, what is, what is it that we can rely on? What is discernment all about? Well, it starts with a level and firm foundation. So specifically today, we are going to uh, start looking at, uh, at a portion here. So in verse 16, it says, For the world offers only craving for physical pleasure. And that's what we're going to start talking about today. Now, some of you may have heard this say, uh, referred to as lust of flesh. Craving for physical pleasure or lust of flesh. And lust of flesh is a, is a huge category in and of itself because there's so many different aspects that are involved in that. So um, let's dive into it. I think that was enough of a setup, right? In order to dive into it, of course, like I said, I got to go to the foundation. So what is the foundation? The foundation is the very beginning. And I'm not talking about, hey, you know, I'm James. I was born in 1973. No, I'm talking about the foundation. Let's go back even further than that. I'm talking about Genesis. You have to go back to Genesis because that's how we see how God begins to present himself to us. It's the written word of God presented to us. 
And the very first thing that we see is that God presents himself in relationship. God presents himself in relationship, in fact, even holds under a relationship to be uh, foundational. There I go with that word again, right? We, in fact, understand relationship from the very beginning of our lives. From the moment that we're in the womb, we have a relationship with our surroundings. We hear sounds. If, you, if you've ever heard like the, the sound of a baby's heartbeat in, in the womb, Kind of sounds like a washing machine almost, kind of like the, the swishing cycle you know, type of thing. That is the kind of sound that we heard through, through the amniotic fluid, right? So it's kind of a little bit uh, distorted from what we expect our heartbeat to, to sound like here. But we, uh, we find warmth, comfort, uh, nutrition uh, in those sounds in that environment. And that is our first relationship. We don't know that there's this other human being that basically is engulfing us, right? But we know that there's something there, and we find comfort in that something. There's relationship with those sounds to begin with. And then we're born, and our entire life changes. That relationship with those sounds and that environment suddenly becomes obsolete. And it is so terrifying that many of us come out crying. Some don't. Some take it pretty calmly. But many of us come out crying because that relationship has suddenly changed. But we begin to calm down as we're placed against our mother's breasts. And we start to hear that familiar sound. A little bit different, right? But it's still familiar. That whoosh, whoosh. wait a second, that kind of sounds familiar. I already have a relationship with this. Our relationship is changed, but it's still there. So even from the womb and into birth, we have a relationship. Now, true, you know, our relationship in the beginning is based primarily on one thing, and that's having our needs met, right? What, what do I need when I'm a child? Well, I need food. I need to be... Uh, taken care of, I need to be protected. When I need those things, I inform my parents by crying until I can communicate better, uh, be a nonverbal communication or communication of, uh, you know, of the, the tongue. I'm able to say or indicate what it is that I need, and I trust that my parents are going to provide that for me. Even in broken relationships, there's still that seeking after having your needs met. In fact, this is often where the problem that grows into a huge problem comes from, is many of us don't have opportunity to see what that proper foundational relationship is like, so we carry that into all our relationships into the future. They become only a means to have our needs met. See, already our foundation is slightly off level, so it affects our perception of the whole world. Therefore, because in those early relationships, I only needed my needs to be met and they were not, I never mature out of that and I continue in that vein. Every relationship becomes 
an opportunity only for me to have my needs met. Yes, that is self-centered. Now, if we do benefit from a well-grounded relationship, as we grow up, we still take that imprint, that foundation, and we try to find and start other relationships. Uh, think, about, uh, think about toddlers, right? If you put a toddler around a strange toddler, what usually happens? They're usually like instant friends. If you involve a child, uh, if you're walking through with your child in a grocery store, what, are they skittish of every single person that they meet? Well, usually they're over-friendly, and you have to restrain them from that, right? It's because their definition of relationship is based off of their relationship with you. And if their relationship with you is a good relationship that's built on a strong foundation, if they have an understanding that you are friendly, that you are going to meet their needs, meet their needs that you are someone that, that they want to be involved with, well, everyone else must be similar to that too. And that is where the second stage comes in, where we take whatever foundation that was laid first and we start to build on top of it. We say, this is how you understood the world. Now you have to understand a couple of different things, right? It's either the world is a very dangerous place and you will die. Or everyone is here to meet your needs. Or thirdly, yes, the world is dangerous, but you can conquer it. There's a, a decision to be made. As each stage of development comes along, there are more decisions that are made that affect how it is that you relate to each other. We all end up at the same place, though. We all start seeking out relationships apart from our parents with other people that provide the same type of comfort. Now, when I say comfort, I don't mean, uh, I don't mean that you had the ideal child raising, right? When I say comfort, I mean that it's familiar to you. Because even though we don't natu naturally understand it, for some reason, what, uh, what we find comfort is, in is, is sameness. That's why people get upset when there's change. Because we, we fall into grooves, and we like those grooves. Even if they're not healthy grooves. Even if they're self-destructive grooves. We like being in those grooves. Because life is is easy. It's not difficult to understand. There's no struggle in it, right? You can just kind of float, and you feel okay floating. And it may not be the best life, but hey, you're floating along still, so it must be okay. Even if you feel like you're drowning, well, this is what I've always known, it must be okay. So we seek those type of relationships that match the type of relationships that we understood, that we find comfortable. Even if we seek to rebel against that understanding of relationship and we swing the pendulum so far the other direction, you say to yourself, I am not going to have any type of relationship that put me through what my parents put me through. I am not going to turn out like my parents because their relationship informed me and I don't like what it said. 
So either you're floating along in their world or you're struggling so hard against their world that you're just kind of there. Relationship still is the key with how you interact with the rest of the world. Relationship is still the key with how you interact even with yourself. In fact, often you find yourself of two minds, right? You've kind of separated yourself. You have the person uh, that is, well, when I, when I go to school and I'm around friends, I'm this type of person. When I go to work, I'm this type of person. When I'm by myself, I'm this type of person. Or even you have it so bad that when you're with this group of friends, you're like this, and with you're with this group of friends, you're like this. I mean, that was my problem when I was in junior high and high school, especially, right? When I was developing those social circles and, and, and you know, putting myself out there, I matched myself to be with, you know, whatever group I was hanging out with. I, I hung out with uh, band geeks because I am a band geek. I identify as that. I was in marching band. I wore a wool uniform on the hottest days of the summer, marching on a football field, making stupid formations. But that was part of, the, that was part of my culture. I was part of the relationship that I had built. But in addition to that, I was also an athlete. So when I hung around the athletes, I was the superb athlete, the jock. I have a letterman's jacket for all four years of high school. Now, you might be impressed by that. I didn't get it for any of my athletic feats. I got it for the band. But I was who I needed to be to be part of the band, and I was who I needed to be to be part of the athletics department, and I was also who I needed to be to hang around the people that did Geek things, right? Role-playing games. Computer sciences. I was a nerd, a band geek, and a jock, depending on who I was around. I didn't even know who I was. It didn't matter, right? It matters who they perceive me to be, because my definition of relationship wasn't about a true understanding of what my position in the world was. It was how those other people perceive me. That is the only way to define myself. It's because my foundation was skewed. It was crooked. So my, my understanding going into relationship with, um, with the opposite sex was just continuously seeking for validation from them. But the key here is that relationship, right? The key is always about relationship. We know that relationship extends throughout. We can even look at the, the fall of man, right? Where the serpent talks to Eve, and she is convinced, and she takes hold of the fruit, and she eats it. She gives to her husband, Adam, and Adam takes and he eats of the fruit. 
and they are ashamed of their nakedness. Now, why are they ashamed of their nakedness? They have been naked in relationship their entire existence. But suddenly it was an issue because the relationship had changed. Now, it wasn't the relationship between them and the Father because remember, they didn't hide even though they heard God walking from the, you know, walking for their afternoon walk, right? Again, there's another relationship, right? There was the expectation that in the afternoon, God would come and walk with them through the garden. And they didn't hide because he was unexpected. They hid because they were ashamed of their nakedness. Again, their relationship, not just between each other, but their relationship between them and God had changed. So relationship is really your key. God also took great pains to show Adam before that that, yes, a partner is needed. You can look in Genesis 2, uh, verses 18 through 25. In Genesis 2, 18 through 25, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. And he gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. And after all that searching, what does it say? There was still no helper for him. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening, and then the Lord God made woman from his rib and brought her to the man and said, At last, the man says, This is the bone from my bone, the flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. So this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. Now, it closes out by saying that the man and wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, there's a personal uh, purpose. I speak for a living. I get paid to talk. There is a purposeful relationship presented by God and extended through man, and we're going to talk about that relationship here, right now. Adam said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, they often say, because it says rib, right? So if you go and you count down your ribs, are you missing a rib? Some have speculated that the rib is actually a penile bone. Because man is one of the few animals that does not have a penis bone. One of the few mammals. Did you know that? Complete side note and off the track, did you know that a raccoon's penile bone is used in making of moonshine? We'll get to that another day. I watch moonshiners. Anyways. So there is a purposeful relationship that is extended through each of us, and we're going to talk now, after all this time, we're going to talk about sex.
when is the last time you heard a sermon about sex? Uh, right. Not necessarily in full last week. There was an aspect of it there because we're talking about discernment and it can't be separate from today's sermon if I'm continuing along that same thread. When is the, when is the last time you heard a sermon based on the scriptures found in the Song of Solomon or otherwise called the Song of Songs? Huh? Anybody stood up from the pulpit and talked about Climbing her like a palm tree and grabbing her grapes? No? Okay. See, one of the biggest issues that we have is the society around us, the world, has faced a sexual revolution. And that sexual revolution came about uh, primarily, not only, but primarily because of the... um, well, the nature of the way that the church dealt with sexuality, right? Any mention of sexuality, uh, any teaching about sexuality uh, was met with uh, shame, repression, um, suppression, uh, raging uh, against, you know, any type of, of education at all. So like many subjects, uh, the church took... A, Let's, let's save people from this aspect of their lives because it can lead to sin. And to save them, we're going to ban it outright. Right? It's, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like uh, Footloose. Right? The, the town didn't dance. It wasn't because they couldn't dance, as later shown in the movie. They banned dance because it was led by the church, and in their mind, dancing is a vertical condition that leads to a horizontal position. It'll take you a minute. So instead of actually teaching, you know, why would we want to do that, right? Why would we want to have any discussion? Why would we tell you about this aspect of your life, anything other than, ooh, it's a shameful aspect of your life? This is not, this, this is just sinful. That's all it is. Um, but where the church was failing to have any discussions, the world was ready to have discussion. It, it filled that void, right? Uh, the world was ready and willing to step in and present its own version. And, of course, it's one that's filled with incorrect information. Incorrect information that I would say the church even failed to combat effectively. Because they just said, oh, we don't talk about that. Or that's shameful, where you shouldn't do that. It's a sin. But there's no discussion about it. There's no discussion about what it looks like to have a proper sexual relationship that brings honor, in fact, to God our Creator, as opposed to a perversion that subtracts or dishonors God. We've got to put those blinders on so we just pretend that it doesn't exist 
and we'll get through life just fine. Or to put it into an analogy, it's like saying that we don't want Aurora to prick her finger on the spindle of the spinning wheel, so I'll destroy all the spinning wheels so she won't even know what one is. How did that work out for Aurora? She ended up pricking her finger on the spindle of a... Yeah, this is Sleeping Beauty, guys, okay? Uh... Let's put it another way. How many lives would be saved instead of banning or hiding guns from every part of our proper society? We actually educated people on the proper usage of guns. Instead of telling people that we shouldn't have guns or guns are bad or guns are unsafe, you teach someone how to properly handle those things. In fact, do you know that uh, even though there's been further restrictions on guns, the only thing that has happened in regards to uh, gun fatalities is they've gone up. The more restrictions, the more fatalities have grown. Used to be that, you know, in the, the good old days, the good old boys just, they'd go to school, they'd go to high school even, and they'd have their rifles sitting in their truck as they went through their classes. Not anymore, obviously, right? So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about instead of actually addressing an issue, pretending that the issue doesn't exist, or just giving lame, half-baked answers to questions that are earnestly asked from people who are earnestly seeking the truth. So worldly wisdom tells us a few things about sex, right? One of the first things that the world will tell you about sex is that it's just physical. Sex is just physical. It's a, it's a biological urge. Biological urge. So uh, several years ago, I'm really going to date myself yet again. Not only did I quote Sleeping Beauty, but I'm going to quote the Bloodhound Gang. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. The bad touch. It's all physical. It doesn't matter, guys. Or it's physical. It's like a sport, right? You find a partner to play with for a while, and then you switch the teams up. Here I go dating myself yet again. I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. You're my experimental game. It's just human nature. I kissed a girl, and I liked it. Katy Perry. This is a fun game, isn't it, guys? Sex is just physical, the world will tell us. But biblically, there has got to be more to it than just physical. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. So Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6, it says... When Jesus had finished, finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Now some of the Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus asked? 
they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female, and he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but what, pardon me, two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So Jesus himself, quoting Genesis, says sex is more than just a physical act, but it's actually a joining together or uniting into one through God. It's ordained by God, it's a relationship created by God. God took special means, steps, for Adam to discover that he needed a helper. And when Adam could not find a helper in those all of creation, God created a helper for him. Another thing that the world will tell us is that the sex is is just physical, and because it's just physical, it can be casual, right? Physical, it can be casual. It's not so serious. This leads to discussions about friends with benefits, right? Now, every movie that you've ever seen that starts out with friends for, with benefits ends up into a more serious, well, that's, that's you know, rom-com, like, fodder right there. It's just... Uh, it also brings up uh, the, well, you know, prostitution, since it's the oldest profession, is fine because it's casual, it's physical. It means nothing. It's all good. Now, Paul, when his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you cannot say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. Isn't it interesting that in the same section that he's talking about food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, he switches immediately to immorality. Now, why is that? Because he wasn't really talking about food and stomachs. Okay? So let's give you some context real quick. Corinth, the church that Paul was writing to, is located in a highly sexualized society. A temple of Aphrodite was the main place There were a thousand prostitutes, a thousand prostitutes in Corinth just from the temple of Aphrodite. Now, to put it in a better context, the city's permanent residents were only probably about like 25,000. So just look at, at, at the ratio, right? So of those 25,000, a thousand of those were the prostitutes from Corinth. So this large temple, the sex goddess Aphrodite, you worshipped her by having sex with the prostitutes. Sexual promiscuity was so common that Corinth became a verb in the Greek to Corinthize. It meant to become sexual deviant. 
Many people in Corinth viewed sex as a simple fulfillment of a biological urge. In fact, their common saying translates to, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is their version of Katy Perry saying, hey, you get hungry, you eat, you get tired, you sleep, you have sexual urges, you have sex. You fulfill them. It's just like any other urge. And Paul says, no. Also, we see in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, a little bit further down, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. When you have sex, you become one body with the person that you have sex with, and it is impossible to have sex and not have this happen on some level. It's impossible for that to happen. You'll notice that Paul's illustration for immorality is sex with a prostitute, which is, by definition, a casual encounter, even though there's money involved. Because it involves a stranger, it involves no commitment, and there's also that likelihood that you'll never see them again. So two myths, the Bible addresses both of those. The third myth that we'll talk about today is sex and sexual attraction becoming your identity. This one is really uh, very prevalent in this day and age especially, right? So it is your very identity as a person. So I am no longer just James. I would identify by the type of sex that I prefer, right? So I would say that I'm a heterosexual, and that defines me as who I am. People will say I'm a homosexual, I'm bisexual, I'm transsexual, I'm asexual, etc., etc., etc. The metric in which you identify yourself becomes your sex, your sexual identity, what you do within the context of your sexual liaisons. Now in Ephesians verse, or chapter 1, pardon me, verses 4 through 5, we are told who we are. We are told what our identity is. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And it continues on to 5 to say, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And we can also look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. So 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. For the Lord is spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So our identity is no longer defined by aspects of us our sexuality, our gender, our race. It's defined now by 
the image of God. Because we were created in God's image, and as we become Christians, and we slough off that which is old and become new creations, we seek to properly reflect that image of God. So our value no longer comes from those relationships that we sought after. So my value as a human being did not change like in junior high and high school, right, where I was a geek, I was a nerd, I was a, a jock, I was a, I don't know, whatever I was. Those were not my identity. Those did not provide me value. Even while I was in the, in the moment, those I found to be lacking. I couldn't identify fully who I was. Only through God and properly reflecting of his image do I have value regardless of what those people think of me. Only then can I have proper relationships. Only then can I have even proper sexual relationships. And quite honestly, I could stand up here for hours and hours talking about different aspects of the world versus God when it comes to sex. Um, how attitudes towards sex even affect your walk with God. Are you holding something back? Are you being less than vulnerable? Do you have a secret shame? Are you holding on to guilt? Do you fail to enter into accountable relationships so that that shame and that guilt can be properly dealt with and properly given to God? Do you have aspects of your life, sexual or otherwise, that you just don't discuss? It's just too hard to do. Do you discuss, say, for example, pornography? I didn't even talk about pornography yet, right? Do we talk about you know, pornography and, and how it dehumanizes sexuality, it depersonalizes people, especially this day and age when pornography is, is not just an image on a page, right, but it's, it's digital. And with advances in technology, it's even less real. They have deep fake porn. So they've taken something that was already less than real and made it less real. but realistic looking. The point here is not these different lies that the world will tell us or not these different things that the world will seek to teach us in regards to sex. The point is that the same answer always comes from the word of God in regards to all of those different things that the world would tell us. The word of God is consistent in its message, and it's not a message of, hey, don't talk about this, it is shameful. It's a message of, there is a proper context for this, and it is glorious, and it is beautiful, and it brings honor to God. Sex can bring glory and honor to God within the proper context of a committed, permanent relationship between man and woman. I've defined it. There you go. Joined and committed together before him, and we dishonor him 
when we serve ourselves. We dishonor him in our sex lives when we fail to mirror the Trinitarian relationship that he presents himself to us in. Just think about the members of the, the Trinity. They never relate to each other as objects to be used for their own good. They relate to each other in love, seeking to serve the goodness and glory of the other. We fall back on that easy one, right? Not my will, but your will be done. Only the sexual embrace within marriage mirrors the nature of the Trinitarian relationship in creation. Only in marriage, done correctly with God at its center, is it loving, permanent, exclusive, and self-giving. Premarital and extramarital sex cannot mirror that reality at all. Now, if you find yourself to be overcome or overwrought with sexual desire, you're really declaring God not good enough. You're saying that God is not strong enough for your own desire. In reality, you're saying that you're not willing to give up that aspect of your life. Society is ripe with sexuality. Society, society exudes you can't go anywhere without having some form of sexuality thrown in your face. It's in advertisements, it's in songs, it's in shows and other media, it's in your social media. Many of you carry around your phones which have instant access to pornography. It can be difficult. It can be difficult to, difficult to even admit that there's a problem that's there, right? That those things become more precedent than your relationship with God. Only through God's grace can we stand strong and bring that aspect of our lives, that sexual part of the whole of us, fully back into honoring him through sex. We can fully honor God through sex. It's kind of a weird thing to say. But it's true. Don't fall under the impression that sex is the most important thing in your life, the, the most important thing in any type of relationship that you have. The larger destroyer of marriages is not, as the world would have you believe, sexual incompatibility. The largest destroyer of marriage is that there's no foundational truth in God. Why would I be committed to you when we're just animals? It doesn't even make sense to be committed to one person if you're just an animal. Doesn't make a sense to, to say, well, We've just evolved to be this way, so survival of the fittest. But yet, there's still a deep psychological harm whenever adultery enters into a relationship. 
Why? Because it's not true, people. There's more to it than that. So let me ask you a few questions and we'll go to our cell groups today. The first question is how has your relationship with God informed your understanding of sexuality? How has your relationship with God informed your understanding of sexuality? And secondly, how or have you thought about how sex can honor God? And then, of course, you have to have the follow-up to that. I don't want no yes or no's, right? It's why or why not. So have you thought about how sex can honor God? Why or why not? And then thirdly, how do you identify yourself or slash describe yourself? I am what? I am blank. How do you identify yourself? Because it's important how you do that. Let's go ahead and break for cell groups. <laughs>